welcome to another week of Carpool Q&A, all things church planting related, all things church government related, ecclesiology, missiology. I'm here with Pastor Tom. We're driving up the road back to Hope Reformed Baptist Church Logan. Tom's just preached and we're going to kick off with some questions. How you going, Pastor Tom? I'm good. I'm <laughs> I'm nervous about our, our blind spot over here, uh, okay, yeah. but other than that and the, and the truck that the, our viewers can't currently see about four four inches just, in front just, of us. Just have faith. Just have faith. <laughs> other than that, I'm I'm really I'm great. I'm good. I'm pumped. We've just we've done two church services today. The the evening services were going to be in sync because of my injury. They're out of sync now, so I'm preaching three different sermons every day, Love uh, each Sunday, which is exciting and uh, gives gives plenty of variety. So I'm I'm enjoying it. Yeah, preaching to. People who are hungry for the word is always awesome. So, I'm awesome. Okay, uh, first real question: What is the regulative principle, uh, and why do we hold to it? Well, I wouldn't say that we we strictly do hold to the regulative principle, but the regulative principle for those playing at home, it's to do with what things you allow in the in the worship service. So it's it's sometimes short for uh, shortened to RPW the regulative principle of worship, it's answering the question, what are you allowed to do in the church service? What should a church include as a part of its worship? And how do we know what's acceptable or not? So the strict regulative principle, there's going to be a spectrum, as there always is on issues like this. But the strict regulative principle is that you are not allowed to do anything except for what is directly commanded in the scriptures. So these, these guys will... Um, uh, look, usually these guys are either extreme Reformed Baptists or, or, I don't want to use the word extreme, homeschooled Reformed Baptists or or Presbyterians or something like that, who are very Reformed and they're right down on the center of the spectrum. And they will usually also hold to EP, which is called Exclusive Psalmody, meaning even all of their songs are literally from the Bible. So they only sing the Psalms. Right. Um, so yeah, they're right down there on that end. Then there's probably the more, more everyday, you know, cheaper brand version of regulative principle, which would say, we don't have the freedom to do whatever we think God would like in our own worship. Okay, so we don't just get to come up with the fact that hey, I think I think a play, I think a little bit of theatre can be done to the glory of God, and so we're going to do that in our worship service and exalt Jesus through some theatre. Uh, no, we don't. We, we can't just come up with that. Even things like we're going to have the children put on a little, you know, a little display each Sunday, or, or on key Sundays, or whatever. Uh, I'm not really comfortable with that either. Even things like should we have themed services, like might step on some toes here. Things like Compassion Sunday and have a representative from Compassion come and do a big talk. Should we have you know even Mother's Day themed sermons, Australia Day sermons, things like that? Like, do we have the freedom to just do whatever we want in worship? No, I would be somewhere between regulative and normative, I think. If people out there wanted to uh, gauge me, they can do what they want. But regulative principle says, no, we should only be doing what we see commanded in Scripture. The honest guys say with me, well, plus or minus the absolute necessities. So are we commanded to sit at certain points or stand at certain points in Scripture? No, we're not. That's like we're up to, That's up to freedom. Are we told how long sermons ought to be, what order the liturgy needs to be, stuff like that. No, no, we're not. However, is it true that the Bible does give us a specific set, lot of things that we should be doing in Scripture? Yes, it does. 
in, especially in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, where, you know, we're told there should be teaching, reading of scripture publicly, exhortation, there should be praying, there should be the lifting up of hands, there should be uh, singing, right? So, so we, we sort of put all this in an order and we call it a, maybe we'll call it a liturgy or an order of service, whatever it is. Should there necessarily be catechisms or confessions? Not necessarily, but that might come under the teaching and exhortation of a church. So yeah, that's what the regulative principle says is you're only allowed to do what the Bible commands. However, I'm not strict on that because, well, I'm, I'm pretty strict. I mean, you know, our, our worship service is pretty stripped back. We're not trying to add certain things into it, but we have the gospel grace of conscience to be able to say, well, you know, we're going to throw in announcements. Yeah, we're also, we also might decide for the sake of necessity and edification, we're going to include the reading of a confession or a creed every Sunday. That's not commanded, but I think it's very uh, ordinarily, it's a fine implication of the scripture. Whereas down on the other side, you'd have guys who would say, when normative principle. A normative principle says, well, anything that you see in scripture, you're allowed to copy. Right? So, so that's the normative principle. You're allowed to do praying, preaching, teaching, you know, singing. Okay. But that doesn't, it doesn't mean it's against other stuff. So you should have some of those plus other things like plays, like song recitals, like unicycles, blah, 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 <laughs> stuff like that. And yeah, I, uh, once you go down that path too far people just do whatever they think god would feel pleased by but we don't live our christian life that way in any realm the scripture really does give us what god's will for us in sanctification is and specifically more specifically for our worship service like sometimes christians don't you know we we spend so long in our world saying it's a relationship not a religion like you know you can worship jesus anywhere kind of true yes you can worship jesus anywhere but not in the same way. We've lost the mindset that the, the gathered assembly is something covenantal, important, and utterly different from anything else you do during the week. Mm. It is so, so when you start saying, yeah, no, there really is an area of our life that God specifically and explicitly orders, well, no, not orders, but commands how we worship him, and we shouldn't meddle with that, whereas how we get dressed, how we live our life, yeah, you're right, God does not micromanage. He gives commands, and we ought to, with our gospel grace and conscience, see how that plays out. That's not the same thing. Either. You know, there are things that are not necessarily sinful. Going to the theatre, watching a movie, watching a concert, whatever, doing a, a, a recital. That becomes sinful once it's in the worship assembly. Okay. And so, we, yeah, so that's, that's what the regulative principle is really at and what it gets to. Some people would say, ah, you're pretty regulative. Some super reformed guys would say, nah. Hope Church is only normative or towards that end. I don't really care about the titles. Um, I don't, what I don't like is exclusive sampling. Like, we should only sing the Psalms, um, which they don't. They put into the Psalms a whole bunch of references about Jesus and stuff when they know it's pointing to him. So, which is what most, most good hymns will do. They'll take biblical truth and show how it's all fulfilled in Jesus anyway. So, I, I think the church should sing more Psalms than she does. But there's definitely not a command to only do that. Like I, I think you're wrong in your interpretation of scripture about what songs you're allowed to sing. I think you're wrong when your rules tell us that the saints in heaven are sinning. It says that the, the, the saints in heaven are, uh, well, the saints before God's throne in Revelation are singing a new song, not just about God's creation and his lordship and his sovereignty, but now a new song specifically about the fact that the lamb has ransomed the people by his blood and has made them a kingdom. 
are you going to tell me it's wrong to sing a Revelation 4 themed, you know, Revelation 4 and 5 themed song because it's not in the Psalms? No, absolutely not. I mean, I think we, we have that liberty, definitely, to, to create new songs based on biblical themes and, and sing them. But anyway, I hope that answers cool. the question. Yeah, so what are the essential elements that make up a church gathering? What makes church, church? If I had to boil it all the way down, it would really just be singing and and a sermon. Because everything that is that Paul also lists to Timothy on top of that can be wrapped up in a sermon. Right? So he says public reading of scripture and exhortation and to prayers. He tells them preach the word. Well, I read the Bible, I exhort on the basis of it, I close with prayer. And I, and I preach all in my sermon, right? Yeah. So I could say, yep, I'm obeying all of that when we're doing our, you know, our 45 minute sermon bit. And, uh, but I think also the, the, the gathering of God's people has always included right back into the early days of Genesis has always included the singing of praises. We are explicitly commanded that as you know, Colossians three, we should be praising and singing songs and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But if you really weren't that creative, you know, you had very few volunteers and it was just a pastor and a deacon and a church plant and two or three people were gathered together as long as you sing together and somebody opens the word and, and preaches and prays, mm. you pretty much got it. And, and, and I'm saying it as if that's super minimalistic. That's pretty much all we do at church. Yeah. <laughs> right? We come in, we read the word of God as a call to worship. We pray, we sing. I get up and preach the Bible. Mornings we'll have our confession explained, you know. And then we pray and, and sing again. And uh, it's very stripped back. We try and do only what we see the scripture telling us to do. And mm. that's the purest morsel of covenantal time together. You know, means of grace heavy. It's like a, uh, you ever gone hiking? Yes. And they give you trail mix and those horrible muesli bars. It's like that. They concentrate everything. Not that it, it tastes horrible. Sometimes it's delicious. Let's pretend there's a delicious trail mix muesli bar. And when it's it's like a concentrated protein and everything you need right in that. So that all you need to do is is take that and you've got all the nutrients you need. That's what we try and do at church. Mm. As little fluff, as little fanfare, as little show, as little fat as possible. Just what you need. And that becomes something that is sustaining and very good for the Christian soul. Yeah. Very cool. Next question is to do with sacraments. So let me say lastly though. Okay. If somebody's at a church and they've got most of that stuff, but they're missing sort of a central theme, I would even say maybe not an action, like a like a thing, but a but a, a central notion is the explicit gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection in our place, and that people must believe in that, and that those who do believe in that are saved for eternity and forgiven by God. That truth needs to be both explicitly stated and frequently brought up for that to be able to be called a church gathering. If you came together and you, and even if you're all Christians and you studied a topic and you sang some songs, but people were not compelled to believe in Jesus and the central, you know, the, the, one of the central points of the sermon was not to extol Christ in his crucifixion and resurrection, you just don't have a Christian gathering. So if a church does not preach the gospel explicitly in their sermons, are they a church? Are they having church gatherings? If that church does not 
believe the gospel, then no, obviously. If that church, yeah, believes the gospel, it's in our statement of faith, but you hardly ever hear it preached ever, except for like, Jesus loves you and died for you. Like if it's not a central strong theme in each sermon, then it's probably not a true church. It's probably wavering, and I think it would be under sort of discipline. From, it's probably shrinking, or it's growing in a really bad, unhealthy way. Yes. But if it's an otherwise seemingly good church, they're just not preaching the gospel much, then you go, they would be under the discipline of the Lord. And at some point, you know, I'm not their judge, but at some point God would either close them down or, or give them over to judgment because that is the lifeblood of the church. Is the lifeblood that gives life to everything else is the gospel. That's what the Spirit empowers. That's what Jesus died for. That's what defines the people and what defines the church is people who know and love the gospel. Um, so, yeah, I, I would make it that serious. If, if I realize that in a Sunday we didn't have themes sung about Jesus, texts read about Jesus' gospel, and I didn't even, and I somehow, you know, I had a stroke and I didn't mention Jesus. I just talked all about the sovereignty of God or I just talked all about sexual ethics or something and I got home, I would be kicking myself and repenting to the Lord going, we had a great gathering this morning, people felt nice, it failed to honor Christ by being a right Christian worship service. It would be like if I didn't preach from the Bible. It's like if I preach from Jesus from a great old Christian poem, people go, oh, that's, that's kind of not church. Everything else is really close, but that was important enough to not be church. I'd say the same thing about the gospel. It's so definitive. Yes. So even if you preach an, a true sermon with yep. true truths, but you miss the gospel, it's not really church. Nope. I'm, I'm going to say immediately our church just became not a church, or that that gathering was immediately not church anymore. But that's because we do it every week, so it would be a once off. But if that's regular for a church, if somebody's going to church and they're realizing, yeah, that's my church, I, I don't know if I can bring an unsaved person to church and be saved because they might not hear the gospel. If that's them, let me say, yeah, that's, you, you may not be in a church that Jesus looks on and says, this is a church of my people. You may be looking on and saying, there are a lot of Christians here that does not make it a church. Mm. Very good. Primacy of the gospel. Yeah. So, next question, moving on to sacraments and kind of eldership, church government, yep. would you administer sacraments in a church plant in the situation you are right now? Yeah. Yeah, I would because I'm an elder. I'm an ordained elder. So probably first question would be like, who can ordain, who, who can administer sacraments? Who can baptize and give Lord's Supper? And I would say technically, technically anybody who is a Christian who knows the gospel, technically. There is freedom for that. <clears throat> However, it should always be done under the leadership and teaching ministry of the elders of the church. First of all, because they are charged with church discipline, and who takes the sacraments is a huge part of church discipline. Also because the sacraments are an extension of the teaching ministry. So this is what Calvin would call a visible word. They are an extension of the teaching ministry. You know, it's not like somebody can say, well, I wanted to be an elder, but I can't teach, so why don't I just do the sacraments? And, uh, well, because baptism, before you can make baptism, baptism, you sort of have to baptize baptism with the words, with the truth of the gospel, right? People have to hear what this represents. This is the gospel. Here's how this represents the gospel. And the same with the sacraments. You need to be able to teach just like Paul did in 1 Corinthians, just like Jesus did on the very first night. Here's what this represents. Here's who is allowed to come forward and take. Here's who is welcomed. Here's what it symbolizes. And therefore, the sacraments are an extension of the teaching ministry. 
that's why I would say, really, in almost any situation, it should be the elders baptizing and giving the Lord's Supper, even if they're not physically doing the dunking or the handing out, but they should be residing over it, right? Making sure they know who is going in and through and whatnot, because it is a part of the teaching ministry. So yeah, I might, I might, I might be able to say to somebody, hey, look, you, you can baptize this guy. You evangelized him. He believed under your witness, so you, you can do the baptizing, but I'm still going to be the guy I'm still preaching. It's still like an extension of my ministry. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, at this point, I'm an ordained elder. And by ordained, we mean a local church has voted on me, called me to preach the gospel. And in that role, I'm going out and additionally preaching to another, preaching another congregation to existence. If, however, I was not also pastoring Hope Church, which we spoke about last week, the intricacies of this nuanced situation. Yep. But yeah, if I was just sent out, I would have to be sent out having been called by that church through a vote. We believe this person's called to preach the gospel. We ordain him to the ministry. So voted on and then ordained and then sent out. And yeah, you can do you can do sacraments as soon as not everybody will answer this the same. I would say as soon as that pastor believes that there's a critical mass of what he could call a church, like the people here don't belong to a bunch of different churches and visit. We've got we've got enough people here. And this is pretty great, gray area, but I would say if you've got enough people there to say, we belong here, there's five of us, maybe there's 50 of us, but we all belong here. This is our church. We don't have formal membership yet, but there's enough of a pastoral relationship so that I can make sure people who shouldn't be taking it are probably aware of it. And I'm an ordained elder, then I would be able to administer it. However, if we sent a deacon, somebody like Philip from the first, you know, first, first generation of the church, one of the deacons, or whatever, we, we just sent James down saying, hey, go plant a church, we'll help you, we're, we're in support, you're under our oversight, but we believe God's called you to this, you believe God's called you to ministry, preach a church into existence. I would tell him, do not do sacraments until one of the elders comes down and can perform it, or until you've been set apart for the ministry, because otherwise he's doing it on his own authority. He's not yet been endowed with the church's um, sacramental authority, what Jesus called in Matthew 16, the keys of the kingdom, which is the, the teaching ministry of the church. The authority of the word of God invested in men, in which would be elders, is the keys of the kingdom. So when we say you're committing that sin, you're not recognizable as a Christian, that's me unlocking somebody from the kingdom. When I preach the gospel, I'm opening the doors wide, bringing people into the kingdom. When we baptize people, you know, all of that stuff is doing, in effect, what Jesus was saying when he said, the things you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and bound on earth will be bound in heaven. In other words, the elders in a church have a relationship with the heavenlies that the things they're doing have genuine and real significance and they ought to view their ministry in that way. So, so it's not just a nonchalant thing, who gets to, you know, who wants to do communion this week? The elders are away, who wants to baptize some people? Hey, does anybody feel the Lord tugging on your heart today? Come down and jump in the water. You know, we're very serious about our sacramentology because of, of the seriousness. Mm. Next question. Since Paul was the one telling Titus to go and appoint elders in these yes. churches, when Hope Reform Baptist Church Gold Coast is at a critical mass in which they can have membership and they're deciding on a... Elder, should it not hopefully be elders. hopefully elders? Hopefully, hopefully elders, yep. plurality of elders. Yeah, should it not be you appointing 
the plurality of elders, not the congregation appointing them. So that would be one of the arguments of somebody like a Presbyterian who believes that that sort of authority is invested in a church leadership structure above the local church called the Presbytery, which is a whole bunch of elders. So they would look to somebody like Acts 15 and Paul's commands to Titus. And Acts 15 is when all the apostles and the elders got together and decided on how much of the law of Moses do the Gentiles have to obey. And they would look to those examples and say, see, there, there is a, an authority structure above the local church. Whereas I would say, in both of those examples, things are just different when you have the apostles around. That was part of their job. They don't have to be recognized by a church to have authority over that church. In fact, if that church rejects their authority, that church just rejected itself. It's no longer in the kingdom. Right? So they were the definitive plumb line. That's why they could have overarching authority. Like Paul can just write in 1 Corinthians 5, you do it, but just know I've already put him under discipline. Right? I, I have that authority, so you do in person what I've already done with the Spirit. And no elder or pastor can do that. Uh, he has to work through and with the, the congregation to come to these sorts of things. So, and part of the authority that therefore Paul had was sending Timothy as his representative, carrying his authority, go and appoint elders. I give you that borrowed apostolic authority to do that. But I, I believe that once those elders would have been appointed, there was not a continual, should not have been a continual process of, you know, the biggest pastor in the area or the most open, you know, most influential pastor in the area deciding for churches who their pastors are. This is historically one of the distinctives of Baptists, that, the con that we're, in a sense, we're congregationalists, in the sense that we believe that those decisions of who are the often official member, official leaders of a church, so deacons and elders, as well as who, who is members and who is not, the voting power of that is invested in the people. So if I say, I really want this guy as an elder alongside me, I love his teaching ability, I love his love for the church, but he's treated people like crap behind my back. And I say, here he is, I'm putting him forward, I have to put him to a vote. I have to put him to the people and say, do you want him to shepherd you? And if they say no, I can't just make him their shepherd. And this is how it functionally works. Like, I'm not a pragmatist, but baptism, the Baptist theology, I think, is so pragmatic because it's true and right. It works. If you give people a pastor they don't want because you're a presbytery or because I act like Paul and appoint the elders down there, unless you already functionally have the people's agreement, the man does not become their pastor. They either leave or they stay there disgruntled and do not be pastored, refuse to be pastored. That's just how it works. Yeah, so no, the, the, the answer would nowadays, because I'm not Paul and I can't make decisions like that, we believe rather, because in the first century, so much of God's authority was just invested in those single guys, the apostles. They could just make calls and say, that's it, here's how it's going to go, and you had to bend your knee to it. Whereas now, that authority is dissipated because we're not apostles anymore. That's too, too dangerous for one guy to have, and for even 12 guys to have, right? Like, look at the Pope, etc. And, and all top-heavy leadership structures like this end up going bad. Um, but anyway, so now the, the Spirit's authority and influence is invested in the church. So we say, if we believe this man's called to the ministry, if we believe that he should be the pastor down on this church plant, then the people will recognize it and vote accordingly. And he will have had he will have shown himself to those people, as Paul told Timothy. Right. Prove yourself to them. So then the question is, when Paul's writing to Titus, why shouldn't he just say to Titus, 
hey, Titus, go to these churches and get the members to vote on the pastors instead of telling Titus, you appoint elders. Yeah, because this is one of the things about as soon as you, when you're at point one, or when, whenever you're at point zero, things look different. You always get from point zero to point one differently from how you get from point one to two to three to four to five, right? So, in other yeah. words, if the churches don't have elders, and it's historically understood that, like, you know, yeah, in Crete, where Titus went to, it was in disarray, and he says that things are disorderly, the church is not as they should be. Therefore, they are the last people you want to go to and say, hey, guys, who do you want as your pastors? Right? Because they're in disarray. They don't know what a pastor means because they haven't been sitting under sound preaching because they don't have gifted men. So how should they know who to vote for? Rather, Paul said, you go in, Titus, because you know what they need. And you appoint them with my authority and make them elders. And from that point on, like maybe the next Sunday, the people want to take another little vote and say, actually, this guy turns out to not be that great. You know, and I guess, now if Titus was still there, he would have been holding the reins. But, you know, yeah, as soon as Titus left, now you're at point one. You know, now the foundation's laid, and from here on in, every other generation of the church works in a more ordinary way. The people who already have a leadership structure use their votes to ordain more people into, the, into that leadership structure. Mm. And this is why, even at Hope Church, we... Technically, if you don't have elders, you can't have you can't get any elders. Technically, the potential elders have to be approved by the current elders, right? So, if some guy named Tim wanted to apply for eldership, he can't just take it to the people and then vote on him, because there yeah, maybe he was a great guy with them and they do love him. But we know we know his secret life as the elders, and we know we don't trust him, so we say no, right? Mm. So, in fact, it has to it's a first approved by the elders and then offered to the people. So mm. it still requires both, but the the elders, I guess, can veto it. Okay. Um, so in that sense, at Hope Church, if we lose our elders somehow, we'll die in a crash. Constitutionally, you can't really get any more elders unless you all agree as members to say, okay, this is an extreme circumstance. Let's vote on people to become elders and have somebody we trust speak into the situation, something like that. And so yep. in the same way, yeah. In, in Titus's example, there was a, it was an extraordinary example. Um, yeah. And so we shouldn't... Now, sometimes there are extraordinary examples where we have to do similar things, but not usually. That's not, mm. it's not, that's not the norm. That was the apostolic. Example. We don't have any Pauls sending out Titus's decree today. No, no. Unless, unless like, you have kind of a similar situation where a guy has evangelized an area, there's a bunch of Christians, he's come back home, has a church back home, and so sends one of his elders and goes, if you want to be a missionary, there you go. A bunch of people are saved on the island. Mm. Go, and, go and get them into... There's 20 of them. They all live in totally different areas. There can't be one church. You go and you set up elders. Like maybe, but even then, you'd probably rather teach them what eldership should look like, get them to identify the gifted ones and put them forward. Yeah. Pretty much there's just no Paul and Titus yep. situations going on anymore. Cool. Okay, last question. You've got about one minute, so yes. you better be quick. We're in the springers, mate. When appointing elders and deacons, yeah. must they be married with kids, as oh. Paul seemed to suggest in 1 Timothy 3 yeah. in Titus 1? No, because uh, he doesn't suggest that. Uh, okay. he, he, he says if they do, then that provides an area of their life that you can assess. Of course, they should be marriage eligible then. Like if you've got a guy who no woman would ever marry, probably a good sign he's got issues. Red flags. Yeah, red flags. Uh, but no, no, they don't have to be. Um, Again, I don't think Paul would have made a requirement that would have disqualified him. 
and disqualify Jesus. Um, he, yeah, okay. I don't think. Clear. Clear. Well, that, you go, wraps up, that wraps up this week's Q&A. Thanks, Tom. See you all next week. Put your questions in down in the comments. We'll get to them as soon as possible. Bless you all. Catches.